Right. A APL is a language and languages are user interfaces. And these concise, expressive languages that you could use at a REPL are a, a significant user interface and, and a big part of the power of these things. Um, and, but if, it, you know, if the only thing you ever give the, these array languages to play with is like uh, POSIX, standard IO, and, and M-mapping, the, the, their possibilities are sort of boxed in just by the, the nature of what you give people immediately at hand. If you broaden the range of, of things that are, are available to play with, uh, then the, the outcomes uh, get uh, much more interesting. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with us, we have a guest that we're bringing back from a couple episodes ago, but before we introduce him again, we're going to go around and do brief introductions from our panelists. So we'll start with Bob, go to Stephen, then to Adam, and then to Marshall. I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast, and I'm working away on my wiki. I'm Stephen Taylor, an APL and Q enthusiast, and I'm waiting to see Bob's wiki. I'm Adam Brzezewski. Uh, I do APL, teaching and coding and more. I'm looking forward to that wiki too, I guess. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I did J, I did APL, now I do BQN. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I'm a polyglot programmer and array language enthusiast at large and the host of this podcast. So I believe we only have one announcement today. So I'll throw it to Adam for that quickly and then we'll hop into introducing and interviewing our guest again. Right. So I'm sure everybody is waiting in suspense to figure out what are we going to rename, if anything, the currently called APL Notation as a Tool of Thought podcast, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, and so we had this poll. And there were, firstly, there weren't very many people that participated. And secondly, Connor uh, suggested calling it something else. And that got some some likes there on Twitter. Um, I think everybody agrees that we shouldn't keep the current name, but it's not very clear what the name should be. And we can't really make a decision since Karna's got a lot of likes. So I think we'll just redo that and we'll link to that from the show notes. So a new Twitter poll will be in the show notes and available. I think you made it for like six days or seven days last time. So it'll probably be something similar. So if you're listening to this in the first few days that this is out, Go to the show notes or just go to Adam's Twitter, find the poll and vote. And that'll be the official name. I'm guessing this is the last one. We're not going to have a third. Actually, I take that back, folks. We don't know what's going to happen. Okay, <laughs> stay tuned. This is, this is poll number two, potentially the final poll. And uh, yeah, looking forward to knowing what the next name will be. Will it be what I suggested or will it be the other options? All right. With that out of the way, today's guest, part two of interviewing him is John Ernest. We interviewed John on episode 42, two episodes ago. I believe this is episode 44. We said at the end of that episode, we were going to bring him back because we had only gotten through a fraction of what we wanted to talk about with him. A brief introduction because we already introduced him and I would totally stop listening to this episode if you haven't listened to episode 42 because we're going to be talking, sort of extending a lot of the things we talked about in the first episode. So it'll make a lot more sense. And episode 42 was fantastic. We covered all the different versions of K and a ton of stuff. But yes, John Ernest 
uh, former employee of 1010 Data, which Michael Wallace was also one of those employees, and we interviewed him as well. You can find that link in the show notes. Um, I think his claim to fame is, and that what he's known most for, at least I think, in the array language community is for implementing OK, which is a JavaScript implementation of K6. Initially it was K5, which we learned in interviewing him, but is now sort of formally K6, but has done a ton of other projects that is what we're going to sort of focus on today because we never got to that in the first interview. So I think I might get these wrong off the top of my head is Decker, Lil, Ike. And I don't know if there's other projects that you want to cover. I'll just pause there, throw it to John, and we can also, I'm not sure if we had follow-up questions that we wanted to ask. So I'll throw it to John first. You list us the projects, sort of the uh, menu list of things that we can talk about today and maybe the things you would love to talk about. And then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, it's great to be back. Um... I guess the the main things that, that come to mind is we could talk a little bit uh, about Ike, which is sort of um, carrying on from uh, some of the stuff that we talked about with OK. Ike is uh, basically a, a front end that builds on top of the OK interpreter and gives you the ability to make little uh, graphical interactive programs with it. Um, I also wrote uh, a transpiler for a subset of K to GLSL, uh, which is a, a GPU shader language um, that's called Special K, which is sort of an interesting experiment. And um, lately I've been working uh, on a, uh, a sort of holistic programming environment called Decker uh, that has a uh, scripting language named Lil, which is um, Probably not properly uh, an array language, although I, I know that the, that you guys have gone in quite a few circles debating what what exactly uh, uh, qualifies a language for being an array language. And Lil has some of those properties, um, so you know we can we can dive into that uh, at its own time, I suppose. So where do we want to start, folks? First, do we have questions that we need to ask right off the bat, or should we hop straight into Ike? What do, what do the people say? What do the panelists say? I like Ike. <laughs> all right let's start with ike give us a sort of a i don't know 30 second to five minute however long summary you want to give of ike and i should mention right off the bat for the folks listening if you happen to be in front of your computer which you're not because you're listening to a podcast um you can go directly we'll have links and you can play around this play around with this in your browser without having to install anything and it's super neat because you have a bunch of visualizations built in, including like the game of life, I believe, if I recall correctly, and a ton of other like really neat things. And you, you see the code on like, I'm, I'm, I'm giving away, I'm, you're supposed to be describing it. I'm going to stop, but <laughs> you go ahead. It's okay. So, so when I wrote, um, okay, uh, one of the design choices that I made with it is that I removed all of the built-in IO capabilities. So normally K sort of comes with, um, you know, standard in, standard out the ability to memmap files, that, that kind of functionality baked into the language. Um, so I made my interpreter just kind of this, this pure unit, and then I built a number of different front ends that let you use it in different contexts. So like there's uh, the, the browser-based REPL, there's a, a Node.js command line REPL for it, and there's even uh, a version that's sort of adapted uh, to use on, on cell phones. Uh, so like or a, a touch device it gives you sort of like a, a calculator style interface for entering uh, k symbols um, but ike was the most elaborate one and it, it basically gives you a, a little sandbox where you can write a, a k program and 
the the end result of the the program that you write is either a, a value or a a function definition with a special name called draw that will return a uh, a structure of drawing operations describing uh, something that you want to have shown on the screen. Uh, and there's also sort of a, an event uh, input system where just you you write functions that have a conventional name. And if the function exists and say you, uh, uh, you know, you press a key on the keyboard, then a particular function will get called. Uh, and there's also sort of magic variables that automatically get bound with mouse coordinates and things like that. So you write a, a function that yields uh, a set of things to do to draw an image on the screen. Um, and that's really it. You, you can, uh, from this basis, leverage the full K language to um, make all sorts of things. You can make graphs, you can uh, do cellular automata, you can draw fractals, um, you, can, you can do all, all sorts of things like that. And part of the, the purpose behind uh, Ike was that it's sort of a... Um, like like a like an object lesson in the idea that uh, K is not a language that is only suitable to the domain of working with databases because uh, that, that's sort of its conventional niche and and sort of the way that that a lot of people think about array languages in general is that well they're they're good for big piles of tabular data but a lot of the same um, you know bulk operations that are useful in that domain are are also applicable to computer graphics a lot of other things like that um so it was really just you you give the language some new io capabilities and then that is what opens up all these new domains uh rather than uh needing new language features per se there's also a, a paper that i wrote about it that um is in uh, vector uh, I think a few people found out about it through that. So, so how do you draw a fractal? Do you like is it? it it's a seed, and then it's it follows the mouse pointer as you as you move around the screen. Uh, well, the um, like the the most straightforward approach would be uh, drawing fractals that are based on Lindenmeyer systems, where you have sort of a you know a production rule that you you iterate a certain number of steps, and then you can uh, you know you can just you, you can just iterate the production rule uh, as a uh, you know uh, applying a, a function multiple times to the same value and then convert that into coordinates for drawing a sequence of line segments uh, but or you could compute that and then uh, over time you know splay it out and then you get uh, an animation pretty simply and cheaply um so the output here this is you'd be outputting svg or something like that well that would probably be the like the the general all-inclusive way to do it um in uh, in ike you you basically have uh, two kinds of drawing primitives uh, there's a a shape of a tuple uh, that describes drawing a bitmap uh including a bitmap and a, a palette for it and the, and there's an operation that is draw a, a closed outlined polygon and with those two things, uh, you, you know, you can you can achieve a, a whole variety of other things from that basis. Like, you can uh, generate an appropriate polygon. Now you can draw ovals and rectangles. Uh, you, if you generate a, a very skinny polygon, then you can use it as a simple line drawing operation. Um, 
So the, the idea in Ike was to sort of give you this arbitrary creative limitation, uh, which I guess is sort of a recurring theme in a lot of my work. Um, but you know, you, you distill graphics programming into uh, these very simple primitives, and then you can build back up uh, a, a richness of expression. Yeah. And so what, what is that in the actual browser like? Well, in the actual browser implementation, I'm using a, a canvas. Okay, yeah. Uh, and browsers have uh, canvas elements, and those have their own um, you know, drawing API. And the, the canvas API is actually very similar to the PostScript uh, drawing API in a lot of ways, uh, where you sort of uh, imperatively set up paths and, and render modes and things, whereas Ike's model uh, built on top of that is a totally functional approach. Um, it's possible to yeah, and you could of course render it anywhere. Sure, uh, I mean part of part of the design there uh, is uh, you know I, I wanted to at least somewhat abstract the way that um, that browsers do things because if you if you just kind of blend K with with JavaScript and write a program that like emits um, uh, one of these complicated web standards uh, that's simple in the implementation as long as you're in a browser. But then you're you're welded to a browser forever, and browsers are pretty complicated. So there's sort of a you know a, a power slash uh, cleanliness trade off in in that kind of a decision. What what would you say? Because I've gone through I don't know if all of them, um, and if you've seen on the Zoom call here, my head's been turned because I've just been mesmerized looking at this Lindenmeyer um, graphic, which it's impossible to describe, and I, I assume. For folks that have seen it, they know what it is. Well, I mean, it is it is possible to describe. It takes about a paragraph of K, and I don't think anybody wants to hear us dictate that <laughs> words. I mean, do you want to do you want to attempt to describe it in in English? Not the. It's just basically drawing a bunch of what looks like Pascal's a version or variant of Pascal's triangles. I assume they're Lindenmeyer triangles. It, it's a Sierpinski triangle described um, using a, a Lindenmeyer system. Yeah, and it draws it sort of yeah sequentially but it has this like it uses turtle graphics it looks like from the comments in the code and uh it has a sort of line that's drawing it and then it uh, or flips the colors of certain triangles anyways very mesmerizing it, it it's pretty data driven too there's a section in there where you can see that the rules themselves are just defined as like a little uh, a little list of symbols uh, so you can see how the the symbolic substitution part happens you could change those rules and you get a completely different shape. Yeah. I would, I would imagine that like this kind of doing this kind of thing with like turtle graphics in Python, I, I have no idea how long it would take, but I would be very surprised if it's as concise as the K code. Cause it fits on literally half of half of my monitor. Um, so my a question was off the top of your head, do you have like favorites? Cause like of the, of the example programs that come with like, yeah, that you would po you would point people at to be the most mesmerized or the most impressed. Like I know there's the snake game, there's the game of life. The the snake game is is uh, sort of a, a fun hack. Um, it's a it's an implementation of the the classic uh, you know snake game where you have a, a series of of segments that move around the screen and you have to direct them to eat apples or something like that. Yeah, and if it crashes into itself, then it derezzes. Um, but uh, that is a an implementation of snake in k that doesn't have any conditional statements <laughs> just to kind of 
demonstrate that uh, you know we have different tools to bear to bring to bear in uh, in these languages. It does use some global variables, but you know I, I could have done without that. So snake game, my my favorite that I think I've seen is this Lyndon Meyer one, just because. Yeah, and and that one, you know, it, it's a it's a good illustration of just it it uses K as a nice functional language. Um, there there isn't a, a huge mass of data being manipulated there, but it's still you know highly expressive. I think um, I'm, I make some gainful use of uh, function pro uh, projection in there to to implement the turtle graphic system because as I said, Ike doesn't. Ike has a very primitive, simplistic notion of, of graphics drawing that is not stateful. And if you want to make something that behaves like turtle graphics, you need to build a little abstraction on top of it. And that's just a few lines of code in K. Um, Ike is sort of intended as a, uh, as a live coding language. This is, this is something that um, you, know, you, you can view building up and manipulating the program as something that you could do as a performance. And the conciseness of array languages make them extremely well suited to that uh, that sort of work uh, because you, you don't have to have a bunch of boilerplate or use snippets or anything like that in order to have small changes have uh, an impactful change in what you see. Yeah, there's tons of examples like uh, probably the most famous is this. Is it called the Swift Playground? actually don't know, but it's only, it only works on Macs and you have to have Xcode or whatever. So it's kind of, kind of a bummer, but it was an amazing presentation when they first demoed it at WWDC. And there's been tons of these, like Brett Victor has a bunch of these sort of live coding things and it dates all the way back to small talk. And they're super like engaging ways to show how you can iteratively build up some cool little, you know, thing. There's a tool called uh, Processing, which is sort of a programming environment that at least originally was um, kind of based around uh, a, a like Java with some syntactic sugar laid on it to make it a little bit uh, less verbose with a, a built-in graphics API and ability to, to inter interact with, uh, you know, GPIO stuff and, and play sounds. It was kind of originally conceived as a, a thing for making uh, art installation pieces, uh, but it's also excellent uh, as just a teaching tool. Um, and because you can just dive in and it's fast, um, you, you know, especially co compared to like uh, doing graphics with uh, with Pygame and Python processing is just unbelievably faster. So you can do things in a very simplistic way and uh, still get good results from it. And um, Processing is available uh, in a in a entirely web based version, uh, sort of like this. I, I guess another maybe notable thing about processing is that the little IDE that it uses was the basis of the Arduino IDE. So, you know, that's a, a very popular uh, hobbyist electronics platform that came out of the same. Um, another notable thing about it is that my uh, BQN uh, co-author uh, Zyma has actually. Uh... He's a big fan of processing and has integrated it into both his Java-based implementations, Zyma APL and Zyma BQN, which is not the same as the, the sort of mainline implementation CBQN. But uh, so you can use processing from both of those. Right. And, and you know, when I was when I was making Ike, I was really thinking of it as it's processing for K. And you can just write a little program. You can immediately start seeing visual results and, um, you know, and, and, and play with stuff. And it. 
you know, there, there are interesting things that you can do with a normal K interpreter, but I, I feel like giving beginners some more interesting IO uh, really opens up the, the range of things that could, you could do with the languages that catch people's interest. And, you know, and again, you make, you, you have a visual program that's making an animation or something, you can just reach in and change some numbers or, or reorder some things. And you immediately say, see a change. You can explore the possibilities of a pro, program space without really having to fully understand all the moving parts, at least not at first. So I am wondering, um, you said like you could do the snake thing without global variables. How do you keep track of state when you're using pure functions? Do you like pass it from one call to the next? There's there's sort of a, a magic feature where um, there's a way that you can you can uh, upfront once declare an initial state um, and you define sort of a, a tick function that will take a previous state and yield a next state that also gets fed into your draw function. So like if you want to be all neat and tidy, there's kind of a, a pipeline for uh, for tracking state through your program or you can just you know be messy and make global variables. It's just this just as good just yeah well i mean global variables are just uh sort of elements in this one big uh well especially in k they're in one big dictionary that you're modifying so it's not all that different sure yeah i mean you know when you're programming in small um global variables are are, are not an evil thing it's something you, you need to kind of like uh you need to kind of unlearn uh, when you're doing K programming in particular, because you know, K has a very limited concept of, of closure. And so a lot of people really tie themselves in knots trying to, to make the neat, tidy implementation of a thing um, that you know uses no global variables and everything's a pure function. Whereas if you just let yourself use a few globals here and there, you can still be careful about it and, and thoughtful about it. But if you uh, are, are less um, dogmatic about it, then your code gets simpler, uh, much shorter, much easier to understand. Yeah, well, I mean, even as a fan of closures and working with BQN that does have closures, a lot of people try to write like um, stuff using scans and all sorts of things when really the uh, just keeping not necessarily a global, but a, a local mutable variable can be a lot clearer. Right, I totally agree. This, to skip back to this processing thing, I was confused at first because I was like, what process, what is process, what is this thing? We were, we're using a gerund, like the noun version of a verb to name a product here. So at first I was confused and I was like, okay, I must, I must be misunderstanding that this is a name of a product because there's no way, and especially if you're going to choose a gerund, don't choose process. One of the world's most generic, vague uh, <laughs> verbs that... Also is like overloaded how many times in computer science? Sure enough, though, I Google processing Java and go to processing.org, and it's an IDE slash graphical library experience. And uh, anyways, this looks amazing. But also, I just think we got to pause here for a second. I'm like, well, what are the folks? What are, What's going on? Like, I know naming is hard, but... <laughs> Processing from from the people who brought you J and K and Q and a programming language should need a name. It's a good point. <laughs> At least in the case of in the case of Q, you know, a Q is a is a query. It's a question. Is that what Q stands for? 
Or it's a quartermaster, I guess. Query? That's what I thought. Depends on who you ask. It makes the same sound as K, but it's for querying. I said on one podcast, I think the other one, that I didn't know what K stands for, but I actually did. It was Keys to the Kingdom. Um, well, he just made that up one day. He just made that up one day? <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody asked him and he was like, I'm so tired of this question. I'll just... Of course, he didn't tell anyone that, but that's what happened. There are a bunch of different stories that I've heard. And another one is that uh, that the the symbol K resembles the first letter in the Phoenician alphabet. Uh, and this is sort of, uh, th- this sort of fits because uh, apparently, because E, of course, is the 1010 the data successor to, to K in a sense. And uh, apparently E is sort of resembles the second letter in that alphabet so that's that's true but a capital a certainly looks more like the first letter than the k does well he'd already used a <laughs> yeah exactly so i would have thought that it would it just got one over from j maybe there's the first available single letter file name in the directory that he happened to be in when he started. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I should jump in and do the usual. We are talking about he is Arthur Whitney. Oh, yeah. Arthur Whitney. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> yes. we've gone to the point where we're not even saying Arthur. <laughs> we're just saying he. No. Don't you dare mention his name explicitly like that. <laughs> this has nothing to do with, with John. But while we're on the topic, so we know APL they had trouble in like 1966 and then I can't remember um, who was it that walked in the room and just said, let's just use the name of the book, you know, the acronym APL. And they all said, okay. I think it was Gene McDonald. Yeah. It's in the forward to a uh, book. Yeah. Maybe he just wrote about it. Maybe it was Falkoff. Oh yeah. It might've been Adam Falkoff. Um, I think that's who I recall it being. Anyways. There's an APL wiki article. Yeah. About it. That's how APL BQN. I think it's too bad. They didn't go with Iverson's better math. <laughs> But the uh, the executives at his, <laughs> at his employer were not too happy with that. No, they wouldn't have it. For those that don't know, they were working at IBM at the time, so wouldn't wouldn't have worked out well. It would have been weird to have IBM's product called IBM, right? <laughs> probably, probably some trademark issues. For there. all these years, you've been waiting, <laughs> and finally, our flagship product arrives. But they didn't didn't I have some protest and say that God's world is just the world. You shouldn't call it Iverson's <laughs> notation. It's just the notation. Anyways, we got to cycle through and get back to talking about John. BQN was supposed to be APL plus one, but now it's Fibonacci plus one. I think we talked about that in a past episode. You can go watch, listen to every single episode to find that conversation. Um, <laughs> J was because it was the key underneath the right finger on the keyboard is what I heard. Yep. Uh, when, when you touch typing. Yeah. yeah. So if you look at your, if you have, once again, if you happen to be in front of a computer and a keyboard, if you look, you know, there's two little dots usually on most keyboards. One's an F, one's a J. It's a QWERTY layout, of course. QWERTY layout, of course. Um, and uh, K, reverse engineered or, you know, a couple different stories. Is K after J? Is it keys to the kingdom? Q? I actually didn't know Q, but I guess is maybe query. Steven, do you have any? Query query and then uh am i miss and before we can totally leave k consider the possibility it's named after ken iverson mm. that's actually nice why wouldn't arthur just come out and say that though i think there are probably multiple reasons he chose k yeah that's true am i missing any other array languages that we should cover the the uh backstory of the single letter or three a was it was an abbreviated APL by shaving away 
<laughs> stuff, right? And then they added a plus. Yeah, plus for the extensions there on top of that. <laughs> do you know why? Do you know why it's called Dialog? Uh, it's it's a combination of the two companies that merged. No, not quite. They didn't merge, but yeah, a lot of people think it's because like you speak with interactive programming, you speak with the computer, not at all. For some reason, which I have no clue, actually, I don't know if anybody knows, the, that old company that the people founded was called Dyadic mm -hmm. Systems, as in like Dyadic Functions. And then they decided to make an APL for the Xilog processor. So Dyadic, Xilog, Dialog. Mm. And the company wasn't called that. The company stayed dyadic for a long time and eventually renamed themselves to Dialog because that was what everyone knew them for. Hmm. Yeah, they took the name of the product. It's the Rim Blackberry situation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Canadian company for the win. Woo! Except they lost, they out lost a little thing. bit. <laughs> There's a whole book about that called, I don't know. So the next language after that should be L. Well, JKL, that's the challenge. Yeah. What a great transition to. Lil. <laughs> All right. Why, Marshall, why did you call II? Well, I wouldn't describe it as a cross between J and K, but it's certainly in that space. It's above them on the, on the QWERTY keyboard. If you look where J and K are, and then you go up. Because it was imaginary. Right. No, I was thinking about the normal the unit vectors or quaternions or... There, there's a trio of them, IJK, and I thought, well, that one's missing. And I also thought this is not going to be a very good language, so I'll take this terrible name so other people don't have to use it. But other people still want to use that name for their own language, so, I mean, there's already <laughs> another Ilang. Um, so that didn't work at all. Hey, do you know that uh, on the QWERTY keyboard, the average position of A, P, and L is J? <laughs> it doesn't look quite right. <laughs> it looks closer to H to me. But maybe not. No, it is. Because think about it. When it, it, we do the math, <laughs> <laughs> even if whether you round off to, to integers first or you do the actual uh, quarter <laughs> width position from typewriter terminals, it comes out to J either way. All right. We'll leave it, we'll leave it to our listeners to determine what the true average is. And uh, with that, we will conclude <laughs> our, our uh, tangent on the history of uh, the names of array languages. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about with Ike other than to tell folks, definitely go check it out. It looks awesome before we move on to either Special K or Decker. All right. I'll take all the vociferous nodding of let's, let's move on to the next thing. What do you want to talk about next, John? Do you want to talk about Special K or do you want to hop to Decker? Well, let, let, let's just talk about uh, Special K very briefly because it's a, it's a pretty simple hack. Mm -hmm. Um, so for, for those who have never, um, worked with GPUs before or written shader programs before. Um, a, a fragment shader is the final stage in, uh, in a modern graphics rendering pipeline. The responsibility of a fragment shader is to come up with the color that a single pixel should be rendered on the display. Um, and so you, you can write a program in this um, in, in one of several uh, closely related shader languages to describe a function that gets applied to every pixel um, that, that is asked to be rendered. Um, so there's a whole zoo of interesting things that you can do uh, by basically writing a program that draws one big triangle that fills the whole screen, and then you post-process it with 
uh, with fragment shaders in order to make it look like absolutely anything. You can render fractals. You can you can even do 3D rendering using uh, like uh, uh, sine distance functions and 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 ray marching techniques. It, it becomes this whole thing. You kind of just intentionally discard most of what the GPU is built to do uh, and focus on the fun part, <laughs> and you get this. Uh, again, from a, a simple rendering primitive, you get this this flexible base. And um, part of my my beef with uh, with GLSL is that it's C derived, despite the fact that you're constantly working with vectors and and applying this in a in a collective um, uh, you know context. Uh, and so it's it's really unnecessarily bulky and ugly. So uh, I just as an experiment um, tried writing in k notation basically the the semantics that you uh, you want for uh, writing shader programs and I, I made this this thing called special k it's pretty uh concise uh there there are things that you can't really bring over from uh the the k side to shader programs because like for example you you, you can't really write unbounded loops in a shader program um well one of my old friends uh at one point was telling me about uh, a revelation that he'd had writing compute shaders uh for the uh compute pipelines when they were sort of a new thing and he said nvidia has solved the halting problem if your shader runs too long it stops <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of the the ethos that you're doing you're, you're you don't have uh, the full power of a general purpose programming language but it turns out that you have enough power that you can write some very very interesting things entirely in shaders and um it's it's not exactly true that that shader programs are not turing complete because in fact people have uh, managed to use um you know texture buffers as a way of storing arbitrary state you can you can emulate a whole CPU in a shader if you want to. It's just not necessarily a good idea, but it is, uh, you know, an effective idea when you're in an environment where the only uh, the only mechanism that you have for uh, in injecting your own code is supplying a shader. Um, so, so anyway, long story short, um, Special K is uh, an Ike-like programming playground where you can write uh, in this. Uh, restricted subset of K, and it shows you the longer, uglier, nastier, uh, explicitly typed uh, GLSL that it generates, and it comes with uh, a couple of fun uh, example programs with it. You can um, uh, a few of those demonstrate uh, uh, sine distance fields, for example, uh, which is a, a very fun and, and flexible uh, rendering technique. So is there a similar like web uh preview thing that you can do that shows three different panes the special k code the generated GS glsl yeah if, if you go to beyondbloom.com and under the the things section there's uh there's a link to to special k and um if you if you go to the the same url that it takes to you but replace the html with js you can see the complete compiler uh, which is uh, pretty uh, pretty compact Oh, it's telling me that your website is unsafe. You thought so. <laughs> well, that goes without saying. Oh, <laughs> I'm logged into my VPN right now. <laughs> and 
It says that your your domain is blocked. Man, I'm going to get a message from uh, NVIDIA HR saying, why are you going to, uh, I won't say. Yeah, you're in, anybody who visits my website should be, um, should be aware that visiting it <laughs> has significant potential to expose them to dangerous thoughts. <laughs> it provides a reason that I'll tell you off air. <laughs> You'll be very confused. You'll be very confused. Or maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, it's because of the spiders, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Go ahead. We all burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, when I'm logged off VPN, I will uh, I will uh, take a look. And uh, we, as always, will leave a link um, in the description. I haven't checked that one out, but it definitely sounds cool. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of spaces where i've had that exact same thought where you're looking at a program that is its primitives are like arrays and array operations but it's written in this like algal or c derived language and you're just going like what like you don't need to use apl but like there's a language out there that is a much better fit for this problem but you know it's not it's not always choose the best language because you sometimes you're stuck with whatever environment you're in but um yeah super cool that you built that tool and i will definitely take a check uh take a look later all right, let's move on to Decker. So Decker, Decker is what I've been working on for uh, quite a while now. Uh, I think at least a, a year uh, in, in total. Um, so Decker is kind of, uh, it's the everything machine. It, on a very superficial level, um, Decker is uh, this environment that looks sort of like a presentation tool, like PowerPoint or something. You have cards. Uh, that are you know, comprise a deck. You can flip between the cards. You can draw on the cards uh, using a bunch of tools that gives it kind of a, a Mac Paint or MS Paint uh, style feeling. Um, and you can also put widgets on cards. Um, widgets are these interactive elements. There are five different flavors of them, but the most important one is uh, the button. You can put buttons on cards when you click on the buttons, things happen. Like in the simplest case, clicking on a button just brings you to another card. So it's kind of this hypertext-like uh, system that's very free-flowing and free-form. You could you immediately start to to think about how like well you know I could I could organize my notes for things in sort of a nonlinear way, or I could explain a topic, make something sort of like a website uh, where I can navigate around in this, uh, but beyond just uh, having navigation as a result of interacting with these widgets, uh, you have a full scripting language um, that can uh, control, uh, you know, you, you can make new widgets, you can change the properties of widgets, you can draw stuff on the screen, you can play sounds. Um, you have a, a full flexibility to um, kind of manipulate this environment and and build things in it. So it it becomes sort of, uh, again, on, on like a superficial level, it kind of feels like interface builder or uh, like visual basic or something. You can just drag things out, make a little application. And uh, the reason that this has some applicability to this podcast, as I, I mentioned earlier, is that the scripting language that you have for controlling uh, this thing and building stuff, uh, which is called Lil, is a, a very, it, it's sort of designed to resemble Lua, which is a popular mainstream imperative programming language, 
um, because that way it's sort of unassuming and it's it's not too scary for people. You don't get this immediate knee-jerk revulsion from people. But um, it's actually much closer to Q in terms of its semantics and the primitives that it gives you. It 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 can on a superficial level seem like oh it's just a a very simple imperative language, but really it's a functional programming language. Everything is an expression. All of the uh, built-in uh, types are, are value types. You do immutable operations on lists and dictionaries. Um, it has uh, tail call optimization um, or elimination, I should say. Um, it has lexical scope and closure. Uh, but then, you know, you dig a little bit deeper. It has a uh, a query language uh, built into its syntax that's in many ways similar to uh, to QSQL. Um, a little bit more limited, a little bit more simple. Um, and uh, so you have this this kind of database uh, programming uh, capability built into it. And that's also reflected in the environment. One of the widgets that you can create is called a grid widget uh, that just represents a, a reification of a table of data you can display on the screen. Um, and you know, and Lil is also a vector-oriented language in the sense that it has uniform operator precedence. It has automatic uh, spreading of the, the arithmetic primitives to, to lists and, and dicts. Um, it has a small set of operators that are generalized appropriately to a full set of, of data types and a sort of dynamic system. Uh, it has many of the same primitives as um, as Q or, or K. Um, so it's kind of, um, you know, it's like a wading pool into a lot of these ideas. Uh, you can um, you, you can ease yourself into thinking about operating on data in a, a holistic way uh, in this language that has very low barriers to entry. And as uh, in, in Ike, Having these nice vector semantics uh, and, and some of these primitives works really well for doing graphics programming there. It also works very well uh, in the, the Decker environment. So I, there's a question. Yeah, so uh, so one of the things I want to pull out of this that's uh, really important that I don't think we touched on enough when we were talking about like array languages is that the arrays are immutable. Um, so that's something that you don't get in Python or JavaScript or even Julia or NumPy is that um, when you have an array, it's just the data. Um, so while I said that I think you know mutating variables can be good, I really don't like mutating arrays because um, in a lot of cases, you want to have copies of this array around and you want them to say the same. You want to say, I mean, this array is one, two, three, and that's what it is. You can't change the two to a four because that's a different array. Um, yeah, and you, and you have semantics that make it look like you can amend a thing in place, but really what you're doing is constructing a new thing. And if anything, you know, new about the the old uh, structure, if that was stored in another, another variable, you still, it, it's not chained. Yeah, which is also a feature of a, of pretty much all, yeah. I think every array language has something like that. Um, J has... Usually the, the, the term for it is copy on write semantics. Well, yeah, but the um, having a syntax that says, well, I want to change this, but the meaning is, yeah, is that you're not changing it. So I think J is probably the furthest from having a dedicated syntax for it or, or 
like a specific thing, but even it has a, an adverb called amend where you say, you know, what you want to put in and the places where you want to put it. Um, so that's kind of a way to work around well to um to have that ability to to change part of an array even though you don't want that to be like changing the array you just want a different array so dialog had an experiment going many years ago when it looked like microsoft silverlight was going to be the future and that microsoft was running in the world and everything was going to be net now something called apl sharp um and there they don't blame me. I wasn't there to make any decisions, but they made the decision that in best uh, .NET language style, uh, values should, or yeah, I guess should be mutable and you would have to clone arrays in order to not have subsequent changes affect each other, which I at least find very strange and foreign. Uh, maybe this is another, um, characteristic of these array languages or Iversonian languages that pass by value is everything is just a value. I mean, it's, it's also a characteristic of, of many functional programming languages. I mean, that, that's, that's part of the, the big reason uh, that, that Lil has value types is that it's also trying to be a nice functional language where if, if you're going to have mutation, it's, it's pretty explicit. That's the, it's becomes um maybe i i've seen some functional languages like i know rescript goes the other way where you can't mutate variables but you can have a mutable reference type so if you want a mutable variable what you do is assign an immutable variable to a reference to some value and then you can change the the referent um so that's the direct opposite of array languages where in an array language you can mutate variables but you but all your data, I mean, you might have mutable objects, but the main data is just uh, immutable stuff. But didn't, uh, uh, or has K, uh, something called a view, which is different type of assignment that is connected to where the data came from? Or am I completely out in the weeds here? I can't here? think of what you would mean. No, I think there was, a, there was at least for a while that, because K changes over time, where it has a special type of assignment, like with double colon or something, where... Right. This is a construct that's it, sometimes it's referred to as like a spreadsheet-like definition, uh, which is basically just uh, it, it's syntactic sugar for a memoized lambda uh, that understands the the globals that it depends on uh, and will recompute its value if and only if uh, you know something that is uh, referred to is is changed when you when you fetch its own value. And uh, OK actually has support for these. Um, it, it's existed in a number of dialects. It's something that I was I initially found very intriguing. And in practice, I found it was less useful than I hoped it was going to be. It's similar to how traditional APLs, um, as opposed to modern hobbyists, whatever, new APLs, uh, have these, these traditional functions. And they have a header that declares their syntax when you use them. And you can then declare a, a function that has no argument. So it's an eladic function, if you can call that a function or program if you want. And you can then refer to variables or refer to various names. It can do everything a normal function can do, just doesn't take an argument. But so it behaves syntactically like an array, but it whenever you call it, it recomputes uh, 
based on that. It recomputes if necessary. The the whole point is that it's it's memoized. Oh, okay, so it's an it's a memoized. Okay, yeah, that's the difference between yeah. them. So the degree to which it's helpful basically comes down to uh, how how often is this um, going to to hit cache and save uh, computation versus um, you know otherwise it's just kind of syntactic sugar. So I could implement this by memorizing manually in the APL. Right, it would just be you know a little bit clumsier and and more verbose. Right. One of the things about Lil is it strikes me, and we haven't mentioned HyperCard, but to me, the, there's just an obvious correspondence to yeah, the look at everything oh, is HyperCard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Decker, Decker is not HyperCard clone. It doesn't, you're not ever going to run HyperCard stacks in this. It does a lot of things very differently. But in, in broad strokes, it is very similar to, uh, to HyperCard, which was sort of, it's the everything program for for early Macs. Uh, it it's really important to understand that so many of the ideas in HyperCard significantly predate web browsers, and almost everything that that early web browsers did was a, a clumsier, more limited version of HyperCard. Except it's delivered over a network. That's kind of the the one difference. But you were saying. Well, I was going to say HyperCard had HyperTalk. And one of the things about HyperTalk was it was sort of a, a, a method of, I guess, using a human language. There were extended words similar to some of the things that Q's done with the way they've introduced words to describe what you're doing. But Lil has something else to me. It, it You've also made choices that seem to me to make it easier and more natural to use. Is that one of the motivations you had when you were creating it? Well, sure. Um, it, Lil is is more of a conventional programming language than HyperTalk in a lot of ways. Um, so HyperTalk has a very verbose nature. This, part part of the the motivation behind the design of HyperTalk was that uh, was trying to make HyperCard as accessible to uh, to novices as possible, and so the the a a well-written hypertalk script reads like english prose describing a sequence of things that need to happen you know you 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 literally write code that's like put the value of card field one into a put a multiplied by b into c uh, so it has, and, and you had variables that might be called this, right? This, this, and it uh, have sort of a, a special meaning for carrying value be, between um, between expressions, and and so it is certainly true that the nicely written hypertalk is extremely readable, but the the downside to this design is that it has it is a language with an enormously complex grammar. There are many ways to express any given idea. Everything is very verbose, and it is not actually that easy to write uh, hypertalk, let alone write hypertalk that that looks really nice and and is is easy to comprehend. At, in, my experiences as like a nine year old playing with this stuff uh, was it was enormously frustrating. It might have been better if I'd had someone looking over my shoulder and pointing out, no, you you can do it this way and Here's the, here's the better way to approach that, um, but uh, I, I think that HyperTalk was a success at making understandable programs to novices. 
but not really a success in in allowing uh, novices to to compose complex and interesting programs. It it also has other uh, shortcomings like the fact that it, it doesn't really have any notions of of data structures beyond uh, like manipulating comma separated lists of strings or I mean really just manipulating strings. And there's some there's some deep intelligence to that, and there's a lot of primitives for uh, flexibly manipulating text uh, to kind of get around that. But at the end of the day, um, I, I think that you know not having proper dictionaries, let alone table types and and lists, is enormously enormously li limiting. And so Lil is a totally different approach. Um, there are a few things that are, are superficially similar uh, because I thought that they were the right decisions. But it's um, it it is more like a normal programming language, but written from with with sympathy to beginners and from the perspective that it should be something that you can learn in layers. You you don't have to have a full understanding of a complicated language to do useful things in Lil, and you can gradually learn about its features and primitives over time and expand, um, you know, the the range of things that you can express with it. You can you can do things in a in a verbose imperative way that's just you know using using while loops and and variables to to do everything and that's fine because the the idea of Decker is not really that it's supposed to be a like a classroom with a stern teacher who wraps your fingers if you do things wrong it's an environment where you can just play um, there there are no wrong answers as long as you're you're tinkering and and making something and expressing yourself creative, creatively. And in fact, there's a lot of stuff you can do with Decker that doesn't uh, doesn't involve writing any code at all. And I, I hope that um, some of the people that that play with it will be people who do not think of themselves as programmers. And maybe over time they'll learn a little bit of programming, but they don't have to go off the deep end to to find use and uh, and enjoyment in the tool. That's actually where Decker becomes almost a teaching environment it, it encourages you at a very light level you can as simple as you know clicking on buttons to say whether you want an animation to happen or something like that which it's just clicking on a button you're just making a selection but as you get deeper into that as you say it's layered as you get deeper into that it encourages to start playing to create animations and and that's another level and you have to learn a little more to do that but when you do learn a little more as soon as you make those changes, you can see them happen on the screen. So there really is an interactive play environment to it. And, and there are some people that um, you know will uh, will look at this and say, "Well, why didn't you go with uh, a conventional existing programming language as the the scripting language for this thing?" And you know, you I could have uh, added Lua or or JavaScript or something else popular, and that would have some advantages in terms of allowing people that are already steeped in these things to just jump in and, and start making stuff. But the, you know, the, the the flip side to it is that by having a custom scripting language for this thing, uh, I can tailor every aspect of the language to suit the environment, um, and and make it so that the the things that you can do in the environment, the things you want to do in the environment, have a nice expression in uh, in the language. So, like, if you want to treat uh, Decker as a personal database system, Lil has first class tables as a type. Decker has a, a first-class reification of those in the grid widget. It has a query language. It has um, primitives for uh, for reading and formatting uh, columnar data. 
it understands text interchange formats like like CSV and XML and JSON. And so you have all of the things that you need to solve this domain of problems immediately at hand. And sort of, I, I guess, philosophically, one of the main things that I, I hope that I've carried forward in the design of Lil from vector languages is the idea of solving program problems directly in the language. You don't need to build up a bunch of abstractions on top of Lil in order to start, uh, start doing things. You can, it's a functional language, you have all the, the normal uh, facilities for making utility routines and things, but uh, you know, you have take and drop and the ability to, to filter data built based in, you know, baked into the language, you've got uh, parse and format baked into the language. You don't need to import those things or build them up. They're just immediately at hand. In, in my days of, you know, playing around with cards, cars and things like that, and often cars were referred to as sleepers. Somebody would take an old VW bug and put a Porsche engine in it. <laughs> and I think Decker is a bit of a sleeper. Because they were mechanically yeah, they were mechanically compatible, right? Well, yeah, they were in the case of Porsche and VW. You could drop it right in, but the resulting performance is quite different. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things with I, I see with Decker is it's just I, I'd love to see somebody show up at a conference with that interface and then start showing things with it because it can do things that you don't expect that kind of a a program which looks like it's right out of what the early 90s or late 80s yeah i guess another facet of decker that that nobody's explicitly mentioned uh, in this discussion so far is that uh decker uses a custom ui toolkit that is designed that especially if you go into full screen with it uh it looks like uh, mac os system 6. Um, and part of the reason for that is is sort of pragmatic I want this application and the things that you build in it to look absolutely consistent on every platform that they run on, whether you're running it on a Mac or a Windows-based computer, or if you're using the, the web-based port of, uh, of the thing. You can actually, from the, it's a desktop application, but you can export a single file HTML version of your deck that includes all of the editing tools and the whole, the whole runtime and environment. It doesn't lose anything in the translation. And so in all of these different contexts, I wanted things to look exactly the same. So I built my own windowing toolkit and uh, I, it needed to be small uh, in order to make this something that I could do at a, a human scale and port to the web easily. Uh, so I wanted something crisp and simple and clear. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is classic Mac OS, uh, which it, you know, it looks very different from uh, computers today in a lot of ways, but I think that many of the things that were good about it then are still good, even if uh, even if it looks kind of retro. Um, so it's, it's consistent. And, and the other thing about it is that it's um, the simplicity of the appearance of the widgets and the, the overall user interface and its visual coherence goes along with the drawing tools. All of the built-in widgets are something that like a person could very easily draw by hand using the drawing tools that are available. So you get this, this symmetry. You don't have, you know, a, a, a beautiful, elegant, modern, subtly gradated button on top of an MS Paint squiggle. You know, it would, it would look weird. It would look out of place. But the, the UI toolkit in Decker 
and the facilities that the user have match and things look like they fit together. And I think that that is, uh, is really empowering and encouraging to users uh, in kind of an important way. It, it, it makes the, the user's creations feel like they're first class in this environment. Well, and as you say, it's very encouraging to a user who might be new to the environment because what they're going to create looks like it fits the environment already. So you're, you're, you're not only um, working with something that looks simple, but as you create, it fits into it. And again, I think it beckons you to take it another step, which is what I really find impressive about it. There's so many places between Decker and Lil that it's taking a user and encouraging them to take that next step over and over again. That's really quite cool. It's, it's encouraging them to play. You know, you can take any any deck that anybody has made, and Decker's default mode is is the interact tool, where you can click on buttons and select text fields and and enter text and, and you know just like operate an application. But at any time, you can switch to widget mode or drawing mode and just lift the hood and start changing things around. Everything is inherently plastic and uh, and user customizable. HyperCard was uh, a revolutionary piece of software because it, it blurred or even erased the lines between programmers and users. And I think that that is, um, that kind of empowerment is something that, that's enormously valuable in computing uh, and, and something that we should see more of in, uh, in the software that people make. You know, the, if you ask people like, what is the most popular programming language in the world, uh, that you'll get, you'll get the, the Redditors or whatever go C++, wrong. You dig a little bit deeper and maybe you'll have people say, well, JavaScript, because JavaScript runs absolutely everywhere. There's literally billions of phones that have a browser in it that can, uh, that can run uh, JavaScript code. And of course, there'll be the people who point out that Java card runs on even more things because like every SIM card and every, every credit card you own is capable of running Java card. But the real answer is Excel because the number of people that are composing software using Excel is just blows out of the water everything that, that we would think of as being, uh, you know, uh, as, as being like, like serious, real programming. Um, and Excel has a lot of Excel's strengths are also its weaknesses. You know, it, it sort of gives and takes in, in equal quantities. And of course, it's it's proprietary software that's, um, you know, it, it is not really uh, customizable or understandable in a lot of ways. But what is, uh, what is unambiguously true is that it's user empowering. And also, you know, it lets you do things in a vector-oriented way. Maybe that's no surprise. Well, and that actually brings it around to uh, the real languages again, I think, because we've had a lot of people come on and talk about the fact that uh, a person who wants to work with a language like APL or any of the array languages doesn't necessarily have to be an expert programmer, but quite often it's a subject matter expert that brings their expertise to that, and that allows them to work with that language. Right. A APL is a language, and languages are user interfaces. And these concise, expressive languages that you could use at a REPL are a, a significant user interface and, and a big part of the power of these things. Um, and, but if, it, you know, if the only thing you ever give the, these array languages to play with is like uh, POSIX, standard I.O., and, and M mapping, 
the, the their possibilities are sort of boxed in just by the the nature of what you give people immediately at hand. If you broaden the range of of things that are are available to play with, uh, then the the outcomes uh, get uh, much more interesting. I mean, of course, like like J ships with uh, with bindings for a bunch of great uh, facilities. You can it comes with everything that you need to make uh, graphical programs, manipulate windows. Uh, load media types. Um, it's not necessarily uh, be all beginner friendly or immediately close at hand, but at least it has a pretty rich standard library. And um, but one of the really great things it has is uh, just a function that I think it's in a package, uh, but it's a view mat function. Yeah. That all you do is pass an array, and it just works. And it shows the array on the screen as a bitmap looking thing. I mean, there's a default color selection. Um, and so that itself is just a big step towards um, yeah, just being able like you can very easily make a picture and see what is the picture I just put together exactly. And and like dialogue has you know a whole bunch of unfortunately a lot of them seem to be kind of Windows oriented, but like you know it, you you have full access to all this this .NET stuff, this big toy box that you can play with. But part of the problem there is that uh, you you have these things, but they they aren't necessarily all exposing APIs that are are nicely designed with the array languages in mind. You can do things, but not as cleanly or beautifully or, or conveniently as you would like to. Um, and and the the process of sort of designing nice APIs for doing these things uh, in, in a way that mates well with the the vector-oriented languages is a big design problem. And it, 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 it's something that, that should be, you know, respected as, as an important challenge to take on as opposed to saying like, well, you know, we just don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> the, the, there's, you know, the, there's kind of a, a, a popular perception among the people who don't just immediately reject uh, array languages on an aesthetic basis that, well, these are, these are neat, powerful languages, but they're domain-specific languages. And so just like a regular expression, we just want to tuck it away in a little closet where nobody has to look at it. And maybe when I have to do something with an array, then I'll reach for this language. This was the thing that I wanted, that I said we needed to ask you about when Michael was on. Um, your opinions on embedding uh, languages, which, so just continue what you're talking about because <laughs> you're answering it already. Sure, sure. Right. So there's there's always this temptation that's like, well, well, we have these languages like like Q and J and uh, and K that are, are very small and they don't have an established uh, software ecosystem. So what if we could come up with a way to sort of team up with an existing uh, software ecosystem like Common Lisp or like Python? Python has tons and tons of packages, and you could argue that like, you know, the success of Python is in many in many cases like in spite of the language itself. But because of its wonderful expansive ecosystem of, of nice things that are are at close at hand to to solve problems, um, and so there's this temptation. It's like, well, what if we make it so that we could we could just interoperate with this with this this big language that's popular, and then maybe people who are using that big language will see how wonderful we are, and then they'll start using us more and more. But it doesn't really flow that way um, because if you make it so that you can you can you can tuck Q code into a little nodule that gets sealed away in a Python package. Anything that, that Q is good at gets just sort of hidden and abstracted 
maybe uh, you know somebody writes a Pythonic interface on top of it, and then it's gone and out of sight and out of mind. And from the flip side, if you want to use these wonderful things that Python can do from the, the Q side, uh, there nothing is ergonomic. Everything is ugly and awkward and strange. And you have to you have to manipulate things in ways that aren't natural. So you end up deferring to Python and, and doing in Python more and more of, of those, you know, imperative, object-oriented uh, manipulations. And you and you just pare down and pare down and pare down the scope of the things that still feel like they're suitable for this language. So in a way, what you're doing is, uh, you know, you, you're trying to maximize the language, but you're really minimizing it and and buying into the idea that this is a little toy domain specific language that's only suitable for very narrow range of applications. And for everything else, it's better to just use a normal scripting language. And I don't buy that because I think that if if vector languages are domain specific, it is an extraordinarily broad domain in ways that are generally unappreciated. And so most of my projects are basically attempts to disprove this myth with varying degrees of success. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with some of that. Uh, I guess what gets me is that, um, you know, if if the boundary's tough, I don't see why that necessarily pushes you towards the Python side of the boundary. Because I think, um, well, one particular thing is that if you have Q embedded in Python, the reason you embed it I would think is to use the syntax. Um, now, I mean, maybe if uh, for KDB specifically, maybe you would treat that as the same as SQL, like an engine that you. Uh, well, you wrap an ORM around it, and you're not writing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I wouldn't think you would do that for an array language itself. I think, um, like, you do have problems with like you don't want your source code to just be a, a string in the language. That's not really nice. But you can probably get it so that you can. Um, like I, I think of that as more of a, a challenge to solve in terms of making the embedding nice, as opposed to something that would cause a Python user to say, well, I still want to use APL, but I want to just call Python functions. Because once they're calling the Python functions, they'll realize that, you know, <laughs> it's... Well, sure. But I mean, the, I guess part of my point is just that like having the the python way of doing things that is not ergonomic for the the q or, or k or j way of doing things it, it it sort of takes away the motivation for coming up with good solutions to that in the array languages there's there's less of a motivation to make the to figure out a nice way to do it uh, from the perspective of this esoteric language when i could just well i'll just dip down into this other language and i'll i'll solve it the way that it already exists I'll use the library and interface that has already been designed instead of expanding the scope of what I do um, with with Q. Maybe. I mean, I think so. Currently, the situation is if you're programming in Python, you have no reason to use Q ever. You have no reason to know about it. Um, so I kind of would think that. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it, it does bother me that by saying that by giving people the option to work in Q or Python, they're going to choose Python. Like, if that's the case, then everybody should just use Python. <laughs> um, and I get that you're saying that they would choose it for the wrong reasons, for these interoperability and stuff. 
but I feel like the a better solution to that is to make the interoperability better, um, make it very nice to use Q from Python. And so then you're able to use it. It comes at it comes close to the level of the language. And at that point, you uh, if you're using it a lot, you probably realize that it's better for a whole lot of things. Um, and then you can actually start increasing your usage of Q. Well, I, I mean, I I am of the belief that uh, that nice interfaces to to libraries uh, from Q is not a thing that uh, that can be generated automatically. I know you, I know you're not explicitly implying that in, in, in any way. The, my point is that like it's it is a hard human design problem to to adapt domains into the array language way of thinking, and and a big aspect of education of array languages is sort of getting people to reopen their minds to the way that they think about a, a problem, the way that they think about instructing a computer to do things. And you know, you, it kind of depends on, on, uh, on, on changing the way that people go about solving problems. And from a, an API perspective, changing the way that you go about expressing um, an interaction. Yeah, so I can see there's this um, there's this problem where um, if you have an interface that's not good, uh, people think they've been exposed to array programming, but actually have not. Um, that, yeah, certainly that that's an aspect to it. They, they, they you know they, they they try it and it's unpleasant, and so they they step back, or they would be being pushed to think about solving a problem in a in a new way if they were just using Q, but They've got the the bumper bowling experience of of Python is always at hand. Python is always singing this siren song to them that it would be so much easier if you just <laughs> did it the way that you're used to. And so it's kind of you know it's a uh, I I just I don't think that it's it's a environment that is it is a, an environment that is perhaps conducive to solving problems right now to you know getting through it to making the thing work. But I don't think that it's an environment that's conducive to uh, broadening one's one's personal understanding of vector languages, or an environment that's conducive to encouraging people to to improve the array programming ecosystem itself. Yeah. So you know, metaphorically, kind of, we've got um, we've got a big gap between um, between the conventional languages and array languages, and we'll say array languages are higher up. So you got it jump up across this gap. And the question is, do we want to build a ramp or not? And I can see both sides of this, definitely. I can see, um, one, if you build the ramp, people will, will start walking up the ramp and see there's a slope. And they'll say, this is awful. This place is, um, this place is higher up. I don't like it. I'm coming back down. Um, where if they're forced to jump, they've got to do it all at once. Uh, but I can also see you know, people looking across at this ravine and saying, "I'm not jumping that." Uh, <laughs> well, maybe maybe look at this from from a different perspective. Um, sort of tying into something that I, I noted in in Ike. I said in Ike that it would be really powerful if you just expose, like, you can just admit JavaScript. You can just play directly with the existing Canvas APIs. But the problem with that is that now you're forever trapped in in the in in the in this this ecosystem whereas again like if you weld yourself to the python ecosystem then that means that you're 
if people are using this, I mean, I, I guess in, in a way, this is less of a problem in, in array programming because there's more of a, a willingness to just throw things out and rewrite them from scratch to begin with. But, you know, to a degree, you, you can end up just being um, carrying this boat anchor around forever of this piece of technology that used to solve this one problem. You don't really need this whole ecosystem that's attached to it. But uh, now, you know, we, we decided on the standard and now, now we're stuck. As opposed to if you design something from whole cloth, it's really, really hard work. And you have to solve a, a bunch of problems um, that, you know, maybe have already been solved before in, in other ways. And it's entirely possible that you're going to end up reinventing uh, wheels with four flat sides. But it's also possible that, you know, you'll, you can make something that's better or at least better in the context of the language that you're using. Um, it, it's a challenge not a uh, a burden i think to try to try to enrich the array ecosystem and and tackle new domains that are traditionally not close at hand and and i think one of the things you've done with decker and lil and i think uh, uh marshall's analogy of the ramp is a really good one because i think as soon as you talk about walking up a ramp to get to something else you've identified your issue what you want is a ramp that goes down so it's easier and it, it 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 invites you into doing something with it and i think that is that's the the change in view that that lil has with decker it, it continually invites you you could do this you could do this you could do this and look what the power you would get out of it whereas i think if you're if you're used to working with python and that ramp looks like it's going up to start with, there's already this, hmm, I'm going to have to learn, I don't know, is the payoff enough? And all those questions are going to come into your head. Whereas a ramp going, taking you down into something, I think is, is a better way of thinking about it. And I, I switch the bridge. It could be simpler, it could be nicer, it could be easier. Yeah, swinging bridge. So you can go down to the bottom, but then it's really, you're just going to get nauseous hanging up out up there. So you got to go one way or the other. But I, I think the thing is, John is saying, it's very hard to design ramps that go down because you're, you're, you're taking somebody from one environment to another environment. It, it, inherently, it feels like it should go up. And if it goes down, you're, you're, the person who's designing the environment is working much harder to make that more inviting. Well, so of course, if you know how to program one way, you're always going to think of it as easier, regardless of whether it is. I mean, I've seen people say, you know, here's this, you know, super complex thing with all these, you know, and maybe it's Haskell, maybe it's like there's all these uh, types and crazy ideas that you have to spend years learning. And they say, oh, this is the easy way to do it. And for them, it is. Um, More familiar. Rather than rather than more natural. So yeah, it's not necessarily possible, but I agree that it's uh it's definitely cool to have these languages that um one, they let you let you program in either style. Um, two, they let you go smoothly from an imperative style to an array style. You can say just use an array here or there. Um and are just, you know, fun to work with. Um, so it's uh yeah, it makes it easier to approach array programming exactly like you said um without starting with well i have to learn what are what are these arrays doing all these difficult array concepts right away so where do you see decker and lil going john where are you going to take it from here well um 
I'm going to continue to improve its its breadth and and depth. I'm I'm spending you know most of my time right now squashing bugs and improving usability, um, making it more accessible, making it run better on more computers. Uh, there's a lot of work to do going forward to make it work better on touch only devices because there are an enormous people an enormous number of people that um, you know primarily interact with computers through phones or, or tablets or you know that's that's the thing that's uh, most affordable to them and um, there are adaptations that I can make to the system that'll make it it work better there um, the the big thing really is that I just um, there are a small number of people that have played with Decker and have had a lot of fun with it and maybe learned something. And um, I hope that over time I can I can broaden that audience and uh, more people will play with it. More people have ideas of things that they want to make with it. It's you know the the purpose of the thing is that it's 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 trying to be an empowering creative medium. And uh, if it's educational along along the way, and if it opens people's minds to trying uh, other languages and other ways of thinking about solving problems. Those are, those are great bonuses. Yeah, I've seen somebody is actually doing Advent and code in Lil. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Ragu. Yeah. Ra yeah. Race time has been working through those. Ho hopefully it's been uh, a mostly positive experience. <laughs> He's uh, filed a few bugs and I've, I've tried to um, take care of those as, as quickly as possible. Well, if, if the, currently non-existent Arraycon ever becomes existent, we will definitely, well, we, uh, you know, the people that end up, you know, maybe the listeners, whoever ends up setting up this uh, fictitious uh, conference can invite you to give a talk called Decker and Lil. And this is my request is that I've, I've I mean, I've had this question for like 30 minutes now, but uh, it's m much less interesting than the discussion that's been going on is that my first thought when you described Decker was that it would be a perfect tool for designing something that I've seen designed in PowerPoint. And it's two different games, game shows. Um, uh, the first one is Family Feud and the second one is Jeopardy. Because if you've got slides, like you can do it in PowerPoint, but it's completely, you know, uh, terrible because you got to figure out how to, you know, change the colors. I've already asked questions, blah, blah, blah. And Family Feud, if you've got built-in matrices and arrays, uh, sounds like it'd be perfect for it because it's literally just like a, a two bot. You're smiling. So potentially, um, you, or this hasn't happened yet, but so the question is, is my intuition that, you know, a family feud like game that shows just a, you know, five by two grid of top answers on the board, would that be a perfect thing to try and implement in Decker? That's the thing that you could, you could build in Decker. I mean, there, there's, uh, there's certainly a, a wide range of, of games and, uh, you know, just, uh, manipulatives that you can put into uh, a deck. Um, I guess, like a like point of history, we've talked a little bit about how HyperCard is one of the big influences on Decker, and HyperCard uh, was used by a lot of people to make toys and personal applications. But it was also used to make Mist, which is one of the best selling video games of all time. Really, and also also one of the most accessible video games of all time. It was a video game that was very well responded to by people who did not think of themselves as people who played video games. And it was written using a piece of software that was intended to cater to people who did not think of mm -hmm. themselves as programmers. Yeah, that is a, it's a great point to end it on.
And we look forward to your future talk at this non-existent conference that doesn't exist yet. Um, or I'm not sure. Do you have like a YouTube channel or anything like that? I don't have a YouTube channel, um, but uh, you can, I, I, from time to time, I'll, I'll write things or release new games and toys on beyondbloom.com. I, I guess I, as a little bit of an advertisement, I'd like to point out that um, this month, the month of December, uh, I'm hosting a little uh, kind of game jam or really like a thing jam where people can make stuff, make a deck in Decker and submit it and share it with other people. Uh, by the time this comes out, uh, there will still be some time to to participate. You could definitely make uh, something worth submitting in an afternoon of tinkering. Uh, and so I'll, I'll provide a link to that. The The event is called Decktember. Decktember. Awesome. Well, we will definitely leave. Yeah, I was going to tell you, go. you're going with Thing Jam. I was going to say, at least call it a Deck Jam. Deck the Halls. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've covered a lot and we will put... Um, links to everything, including Decktember, uh, for those that are listening still in December and, and want to join that, uh, check the show notes out for all of that. Um, anything else we want to, before we plug our contact info questions or things, John, um, I had a very important question that I failed to ask about special K. You said it covers the screen with a triangle. Now a screen is a rectangle. What orientation is the triangle? In? I don't remember, but it doesn't actually matter because from the programming perspective, you're you're getting you, you know you're just getting a, a top left coordinate space. It's just a it's a big triangle. So, so is it likely to be like a right triangle aligned with the? Top it is a right triangle. I'll give you that. It is a right triangle. Okay, we have some right. information. I, I I thought about making it scalene, but it just felt too um, postmodernist. So I decided to go with an old standby. All right. Yeah, sounds good. We had such a good outro, Marshall. And then you just come in and you just flip the Scrabble board upside down. The <laughs> tiles are everywhere now, you know? <laughs> You're like the person that comes in the room with a deck of cards and then squeezes it and watches all 52 just fly around the room. <laughs> That's another excellent thing. You could you could build a deck of 52-card pickup. You just need to write 52 cards. For That's it. an outro. But you can use little scripts to do that automatically. So, All right. Well, deck timber, folks. You heard it. Great application. Go write that. Pick up uh, 52 deck of cards. Um, we'll finish. I'll throw it to Bob. He's got our contact info. Contact at arraycast.com, the usual. And a uh, big shout out to our transcribers, uh, Igor and Sanjay. And uh, they do a great job and, uh, and provide you the transcript of each episode as it comes out. That's the target, and we've been able to hit it. So it's a great way. We're talking about accessibility. There's a lot of people who access the, pro- the podcast that way, and I think it's a very important thing that they do, and they do it very well. Yeah, it, huge, huge thanks to both of them. Um, it is a ton of work and, uh, yeah, it's, we're a debt of gratitude from, from all of, um, both myself and the rest of the panelists of ArrayCast. And yeah, I guess with that, we'll say once again, John, thank you for coming on. It's, um, I mean, at one point I was just kicked up my feet and was just like, this is like just entertainment for me listening to you go back and forth with Bob and Marshall and everyone. And, uh, and yeah, um, we'll probably at some point have you back in the future. I mean, you keep on pumping up creative uh, projects and, uh, you know, maybe when this, this, uh, family feud talk comes out at, you know, the, the conference that, you know, if I say it enough times, it'll happen. It'll just materialize, you know? I thought you would do family feud with, with September. Oh, uh, maybe. I thought that would be your maybe. project. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I also said I also said on episode 42 that I was going to go and implement J and uh, not J K and uh, K six in my language of choice and uh, have not gotten you know I think there's a lot of things I've committed to on this podcast and no pressure you know and I'll probably be doing it next year too if you if you want to just take a very slow approach. This is true. This is true. I've got. I mean, I want to say several decades, but I'm not. I'm not going to say that. You know, just knock on wood, whatever number. Uh, uh, you know, because. <laughs> well, you gave an open interval on it, so you know, like as long as you do it at some point in the future before you die, you didn't technically lie. Oh, of course, of course, yes. I mean, as your veteran uh, podcast uh, guest, you you know. Um. <laughs> well, as we all know. Uh, following through on a, a throwaway comment in a podcast is one of the most important quests that you can give yourself in life. All right, John, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I guess with that, we'll say happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.